Hello and welcome to Alone Upfront, the podcast for teachers doing it by themselves. Hello everybody, it's a change of voice today. Steve has trusted me to open the batting and I'm playing a straight back. I'm just going to introduce myself. It's Chris Mortimer here. I'm coming at you from the Vale of Beaver near Leicester in the UK. My brother Steve is with me. He's over in Berlin. How are you, Steve? Hello, Chris. I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, representing Central Europe here. It's a cool early autumn day, although we're still in July, but I'm not complaining about that. How are you? (laughs) Very well, thanks, Steve. It's a little bit muggy over here in the Vale. But as always, very keen to get into the podcast. What are we talking about today? Well, contrary to what we've just been talking about, this is not a weather or climatology uh, podcast. (laughs) We're a podcast for teachers working outside conventional organisational structures. So teachers up front doing it by themselves, making it happen if even they don't have the support that you might associate with a school or a college or something like that, just like me and you do. And on episode four, it's all about interacting with your learners and your learners interacting Mm. with each other and how we can best optimise that interaction process to support learning. It's another big topic. We're going to take some deep dives, no doubt. Um, Then we've got our regular features. We've got our top tip coming towards the end of the podcast today. That's another good one, a practical thing you can do in your teaching today or tomorrow. And then we've got Is It Worth It?, where me and Chris have a passionate, rapid-fire debate on whether a particular aspect of classroom practice is worth doing or not giving you the real facts so you don't waste time with rubbish and you do maximize the potential of your teaching so that's how we're looking fantastic i'm looking forward to it very much i think we should just dive right in i mean steve you said interaction with learners it sounds kind of obvious that a teacher well a teacher has to interact with learners but if we step back and think about it there's maybe not that much interaction going on and the interaction that does happen might not be of the highest quality. Well, that's exactly the point. I'd like to I'd like to put an image into all the teachers' heads listening. Imagine if you're standing in front of your your learners, and on the back wall of your room, you've got like a like a graphical equalizer, like on a on a stereo, and each of the bars on the graphical equalizer is one of your learners, and their little bar um, bounces up. You know, like they go like it's the bass or the treble. It bounces up every time you interact with them. And then at the end of the lesson, um, the more you've interacted with them, the higher their little bar is on your graphical equaliser. And just think about what it would look like. Would you have a system where pretty much all of the bars on that equaliser are at an equal level, just bouncing up and down Mm. because you're interacting equally with all students? Or would you have two or three that were really bouncing right to the top, hitting the red, and others Mm. that, that barely registered? And... Your picture on that graphical equalizer for that lesson, what, what would it look like? And then we need to think about what does it feel like for those different students? The ones with the bars really high, high, they've been interacting a hell of a lot with the teacher, are the ones that didn't interact at all. And then think about another thing. Imagine that's happening not just for this lesson, but for every lesson or every learning experience. And that's going over the day, over the week, the month, the semester to one's whole education and we start seeing certain patterns um, which embed themselves pretty early in learners lives which is where 
you be, as a learner, you become the kind of person that puts his or her hand up and is the one <laughs> of the people driving the lesson forward, <laughs> or you find yourself one of the people that just lets other people do that and tends to sit back mm. and and um, no one seems to mind. I mean, the lesson still happens. You're still listening. It's all okay, and they're maybe cleverer than you anyway. But I think this is quite problematic because we're talking about a pattern of behavior which can complete lead to completely different learning experiences for those two examples and if left to their own devices the slightly sort of conservative cautious nature of or what of human nature i think will lead to these behavior patterns becoming more and more embedded mm. so mm. the people that don't talk just continue not talking much and the people that do talk, get a positive um, response, positive reinforcement from their teacher, that they're thanked for their contributions, and they keep doing that. And you end up with this divergence um, when the mm. amount of interaction mm. is radically distorted. Um, it's not equally distributed among your learners, despite the fact that everyone is doing a good job. Nobody wants this to happen. Mm. But you have this pattern of interaction which is radically um, unequally distributed. Now, mm. is this something that you've experienced or you can relate to from your teaching? Well, absolutely. Just thinking about that graphic equaliser now and how unequal some of those bars would be if we're thinking across across a specific cohort, but not so much as a, as a teacher, but as a learner and as a, a human being myself, um, it totally resonate, resonates with me that these patterns of behaviour are learned very young and then just um, consolidated for the rest of your education. You know, you kind of get yourself uh, in a loop, don't you? Mm. If you contribute in class, that works for you, so you contribute more. Mm. If you're more reticent in class, you make that work for you, so you become more and more reticent. And as you said, that leads to kind of polarisation, and then you have people pigeonholed as good students, people mm. pigeonholed as bad students, and that kind of pigeonholing is not going to be it's not going to be helpful i think it, it can create frustration for the learner yeah. um and for the for the teacher alike so certainly if we can balance out that graphic equalizer then that's setting us on the right path i think i think i think you're right and it's something that teachers possibly need to be a little more aware of than they normally are it's very understandable that um, this pattern can establish itself. When you're introducing a topic and you're asking the class, so who's heard about this? Who knows something mm. about this? You're obviously, <laughs> you're going to favor the more capable students. And um, you sometimes need their input to, to demonstrate mm. the kind of answer you're looking for to the the less forthcoming students. So mm. I think that there's a problematic dynamic here. This not only is this damaging, but left to its own devices, if there's no conscious organizational method taken to to avoid this, it's a self-perpetuating thing, even if the teacher mm. is doing his or her best to try and be broadly equal, simply because of the nature yeah. of, of teacher-student interaction. The teacher as the repository of knowledge, the learners trying to figure out what that is, trying to master it. Mm. There's going to be a kind of survival of the fittest situation if you're in a teacher asking the whole group a question situation yeah and i i remember steve i mean just to i'm talking about my kind of education but gcse german so i would have been what 14 15 and mm. the teacher 
uh, whose name I do remember, but but I, I won't mention it. Who I, I always thought was actually a very good teacher, yeah. but was but looked tired mm. and possibly a little bit stressed, but was coping with those things well. Mm. Um, but the reason that this teacher was tired was the beginning of the lesson is when um, this teacher did the kind of speaking practice. Mm. And this teacher would have the whole class's attention, mm. but would be speaking to one student at a time. Mm. So saying, Chris, you know, okay, how's the weather in German? Mm. Tom, what did you do at the weekend in German? So uh, this teacher was going around different students mm. and doing like doing amazingly doing quite a good job of it but she but this teacher whose gender i just gave her away was clearly exhausted yeah afterwards yep. you know so so she did get some of those bars level on the graphic equalizer mm. but at the cost of being completely shattered and then really finding it stressful and difficult to move the lesson forward from yeah that. yeah um i think you can i mean but you're always working against the current if you're going to mm. have um, a sort of teacher-focused lesson where you're interacting with the whole class, um, you can become more aware of the need to be uh, to be including everybody. But you're right, it really takes it out of you because it's an additional mm. level of cognitive load that you have to deal with, as well as managing the dialogue and, and correcting people's answers or trying to put them on the right path and all yeah. those kind of things. Um, so if do we you want, write something on the board to correct them, blah, blah, blah? Yeah. You maybe do that. Um if we want to be inclusive practitioners, we're going to talk about inclusion so much on these podcasts, but if we want to make our teaching accessible to everyone in the class, then we can't just keep keep most of the interaction to learn a teacher, but try and somehow equal it out. We have to start um, promoting learner-learner interaction. Um, because that is a way in which you can actually get everybody in the class speaking kind of at the same time. And you give yourself a much better chance of equaling out that graphic equalizer of interaction because um, there's more than one channel of communication happening at one point. There's, you know, 12 or 16 if different students are talking to each other. And this really seems to me to be one of the hidden benefits of group work. It opens up channels of interaction beyond just single learner, single teacher. That's good for learning generally, but it's crucially important for involving those students who have decided um, for one reason or another before they show up in, in your in your teaching space that they're the quiet ones, that mm. they don't put their hands yeah. up. That's not what they do. <laughs> because by allowing that to be their narrative, you support it. And, and that's that, that, mm. that, that, I can't be like that. Mm. Of course, the other option is just, is, you know, forcing people saying you, well, what do you think? Yeah. And forcing them to talk in front of the class. And that path is not a good way to go, obviously. Because friction. You're not yeah. you're putting pressure on people um, and making them feel uncomfortable. That's not inclusive practice at all. So we want to avoid mm. doing that. So, I mean, in order to avoid that and in order to enhance the situation, group work is the way forward. But group work has got a terrible reputation because it's difficult to organize and stressful also spatially getting people into groups. It's difficult mathematically to get them into groups. And sometimes or often really both learners and teachers have got this feeling that group work is just something that teachers do because they think it's cool or because it's something that's uh, that cool trendy teachers do and it is not proper learning it's just an excuse for for messing around have mm. you encountered that negative attitude to group work much in your practice or would you say maybe it's a bit outdated maybe maybe opinions are changing on that already i was going to ask you where 
you know, where you've heard the negative attitude to group work thing. I mean, certainly I don't have your experience in terms because I've never had formal teacher training. Mm. Um, I'm sure you have, and you've had your group work where you've talked about different stuff, you know, on that kind of teacher training. But mm. I, well, one of the reasons doing this podcast is helpful for me is like I, I don't have a kind of circle of uh, practitioners to to discuss things with. Um, yeah, well, because you're so, alone in front, which is the which is yeah. the whole is the whole point. I mean, and yeah. I, I I do to a limited extent because I talk to my colleagues mm. now at the university where I work. But um, and some so of who is who's who's suspicious of group work then? Um, in the language teaching classroom, we're talking about people who maybe adopt a slightly more traditional approach to language teaching. Yeah, where and where where to an extent they want the centre of attention and knowledge and, and sort of authority to be with the teacher. And with the teacher yep. knowing the grammar, knowing the vocab, knowing how to pronounce the words. And when you um, when you decentralise that authority and start letting groups work on their own, then there's the thing. Then there's a the thing you may have lost control, and you're you're. I think it, it promotes a certain sense of insecurity among some teachers mm. that I've I've spoken to. But to be honest, the major pushback against group work is from learners from students mm. who I've talked to who just roll their eyes and say, I can't stand group work. It's pointless, you know. Um, it always ends up one person in the group doing all the work, the others just sitting there looking bored, or uh, the, 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 the time limit isn't clear and you get bored, what we talked about last week, actually, in the, um, in the top tip. Um, mm -hmm. And it's always like, like good, proper, proper teaching doesn't involve group work. It's always just teachers who think it's cool and fun and they're trying to make their lessons fun, but it's not. Mm. And um, this is really problematic because if we're going to address the problem of inclusive interaction strategies with group work, and yet group work is seen as some kind of <laughs> lightweight, daft activity, then we've got we've got a kind of a major problem. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I've, I've got to say, I haven't, I haven't felt the the um, the pushback, yeah, personally much. Um, although I'm probably not reflecting on my practice as much as much as I should, or as as, as much as you do. Um, but for me, it's it's always been I've ne I've never felt a learner not want to do group work. I think it's because I I do teaching uh, in a university in yeah. kind of top university here here in the UK, mm. Russell Group University. Mm. Uh, but still, students, um, I think they spend a lot of time in the teaching space doing individual work or, as you said, in that traditional setup where they're listening, you know, chalk and talk style, yeah. listening to the lecturer. So it's, you know, in the teaching I've done, it still seems to have a certain novelty just just although it's certainly wearing off over time but it certainly hasn't got to the point where students roll their eyes right. and i suppose if 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 i was feeling that i as you as you implied in what you said i'd be thinking about the design of the task mm. if the task is designed with the right time frame with the right level of challenge with those um those outcomes in mind then you should be able to create that motivation on the part of the student I think that a lot of the pushback is also a kind of diversionary tactic because um, I think it's fair to say the sort of negative attitude to group work is not among 
those students with the very high bars on the graphic equalizer from the start. Those students that enjoy interacting with the teacher and have a level of confidence, um, they also enjoy the group work. The pushback comes mm. from those um, learners who take a more reticent approach. And mm. part of this pushback is a realisation that their approach is being gently but firmly challenged. You can sit mm. quietly if there's a group of 24 learners and there's four or five clever people who are always putting their hands up. You can sit quietly, no one notices. But if it's a group of three and you're, and you're not mm. talking and expecting this to work, then you can't. Um, and that obviously can be uncomfortable um, if you've if you've got yourself in a, a narrative where you're like, no, I, I don't talk in lessons, I listen and that's how I do mm. things. But of course, that's the narrative which we want to change because it's not mm. necessarily, well, it's, to be honest, not likely to be benefiting the learner because they're restricting their... The, the potential learning um, learning mm. effect that can happen by so, not being a productive part of it. Have you had a situation, Steve, where you've set up the group work, groups of three or four, and you have a student who is not doing anything? Yes. And <laughs> you've had to, oh, I have, yeah. you know, several times. And uh, my policy has changed over the years. Well, yeah, I'll just tell you. I mean, I used to try to intervene. Mm. Um, but never quite found the right way to do it and all, always ended up having uh, some kind of interaction that mm. whilst kind of broadly speaking would would seem positive or always left me in a bad mood you know so yeah. i decided it, it, it's not worth the negative energy it creates and if you just have i mean th this is these are very isolated cases but mm. if you do have a student who's just almost ostentatiously doing nothing mm um you've got to think about how to you know get going on strike from the group work you've got to think about how to deal with that my policy these days is pretty much to to ignore it but it does yeah. happen but it's, it's pretty rare for it to happen it's a very frustrating thing because part of you as a teacher knows that if that happens then you've kind of already lost um yeah you've kind of, i mean the students have got unfortunately a disproportionate amount of power of you in that sense because you have sort of said to them, right, I'm not going to be in charge for this part of the lesson. You guys are going to go and do this by yourselves in your groups. And um, they've chosen to take the opportunity to kind of, you know, to take advantage of that fact and say, well, fine, mm -hmm. in that case, I'm not going to do anything. And I think that ensuring group work is successful requires a whole range of strategies, including... Um, the meta, as always, keeping it metacognitive, the metacognitive level of, of talking to issues about what is the point of group work and actually making explicit all of these things we're talking about. So at mm -hmm. an early-ish session in the semester or when you're sort of getting to know the learners, then you can maybe say, look, we're going to be contemplating some group work next week or this afternoon or later. So let's just um, figure out why teachers do that, what we think is good about it, why we like it, and why you might not like it. And you mm. can kind of take the wind out of the sails of those people planning yeah, to yeah. just lean back on their chairs during the group work part by by saying that you know that that's an option, that you as a teacher know that you're putting a certain degree of trust in your learners by um, devolving mm. the power to them for that point of the lesson. And I think that if, if you can get ahead of these trends with this more mm. metacognitive approach, then you can actually head them off and then you're not running around fighting fires but you've yeah. you've managed to inculcate a slightly different attitude but this is mm. quite vague what i'm talking about and i'm gonna i'm gonna talk no, about no, it. i like it i like i like it i mean i mean, I mean the idea of um introducing a, a group activity just with a few remarks about you know i've never thought of that of saying mm. you know maybe you 
that do like group work maybe you don't like group work mm. um this is why we do group work yeah it's uh, you know i've never i've never done that but just by making a few remarks as you said you could get people on the metacognitive level yeah um and get them thinking well maybe yeah maybe, maybe i should have a go at this group work you know it's going to help my professional skills or so, so some other reasons so maybe just a few remarks at the start can can help yeah. rather than assuming that everybody understands uh, yes. the motivation and and you just kind of you know you're just subtly flagging up the fact that you you're very well aware that the students could um sabotage mm. this at a personal at a tiny individual level uh, but if they do do that then it's on them you know mm. and because and, i think there's a sense um among I mean, it's difficult as you were learning. If you're being challenged to do something in a different way, you have to be very sensitive as a teacher to understand how difficult it can be and how insecure mm. learners can feel if they're plunged into an unfamiliar scenario. Um, but they do. But 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 then, of course, it's a sense of responsibility and empowerment if they choose mm. to withdraw from the task. But previously, you have talked about that as a possibility. Yeah. Then when you hmm. do intervene, if you feel it's necessary, you don't have to intervene from the position of get involved in the task. You go and say, well, look, you're doing what I mentioned earlier. Do you, do you see that? And hmm. we talked about yeah. why this wasn't a good idea. So what's, um, what's the situation here? I mean, why are you doing it anyway? And it means hmm. that um, there's already a, a structure in place for you to be able to question and the justification is kind of with them to an extent rather mm. than you going over and them leaning back and being said well you you tell me why i should get involved in this you know you it's your task you made me do it you you tell me why i should do it and that's kind of flipped then a little bit if you've already established all of those facts at the start yeah um i think yeah it makes sense yeah I think what we should do is we should maybe take a little break from the, the main topic, dive into okay. is it worth it, and then return um, with a few more concrete strategies for making group work work. Love it. Okay, so is it worth it? This is where me and Chris have a fractious debate about a common aspect uh, of or, or maybe a, 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 a heated debate it's about a contentious aspect of classroom practice i've mm. got my coin here i'm going to toss the coin and then we're going to see who's arguing it's worth it and who's arguing it isn't worth it here what we go are, what, what are we arguing about though steve today the topic do you want to know the topic yeah okay. the topic yeah, is I'll, it's yeah. a good point it's a good point you do need to know it <laughs> is it worth it <laughs> to move around the furniture in your classroom to Ooh. suit the type of lesson you're doing to move around the furniture in advance is it worth it i'm going to toss the coin okay chris you won i'm going to argue against do you want to start or shall i well it's not worth it steve because i mean Rubbish. <laughs> these classrooms these classrooms it's a shared resource a classroom and whether you're in a university, a school, a college, some kind of private language learning centre, it's not your own office. It's not your own front room. There's going to be people using that space before you, people using that space after you. And yeah, there's all these great theories about, you know, group work and other things. But we've got to think in a practical sense, uh, how is this actually going to work? And it just creates a lot of trouble moving the furniture around there's not really enough time to organize it we can make activities work with the desks in some kind of agreed layout 
the organizational culture of the institution cannot impinge upon the learning. These places that we teach at, they exist for people to learn. And even if you don't teach in a college or a, a, a traditionally a learning space, the space you're using, for the time you're using it, everyone's agreed that's for learning. And to my mind, you cannot learn if you're in an improvised ad hoc situation where you've got people sitting on desks and chairs that aren't properly lined up and then there's loads of random things in the room that shouldn't be there. The learners feel that, they, that you don't really care. There's a profound mm. sense of being cared for when they walk into a room and they feel the space has been well organized. It might not be as clear to everybody involved, but it makes a massive difference. And it's always worth turning up 10 minutes earlier to move out, to move excess tables out of the way and get the space just right for the work you're about to do. But we know, Steve, we know it takes more than 10 minutes. I mean, literally a couple of months ago, we did do this. We rearranged the classroom true, we did. Uh, for, for, for a particular video. I think it took 20 minutes. And we, yeah, we, did. we did move all of the desks around. I've been in this situation, in fact, and this is the reason I'm arguing against, really. Mm. I had a teaching situation. I was teaching in Singapore. Mm. on an MBA program, distance learning MBA program for university here in the UK. Now, talk about organisational culture. I think here we're talking more about national culture, but um, the culture of this organisation, and I think to a greater extent of probably the country and Asia more generally, is you best not be throwing surprises in at the last minute. (laughs) You know, we plan... Uh, there's a certain way we do things. Yeah. You best not turn up and, and, and ask to change things. And I did. I turned up 10 minutes before, mm. uh, jet lagged and tired. And the tables were laid out in, uh, you know, some some very kind of um, routine way. And it wasn't what I wanted. And they moved them. They, they, mm. they did move them, but at a cost to me of mm. my relationship with the support staff who were going to support me for the next six days. Okay. on that module and i did i did genuinely think at that time that it just it wasn't actually worth it in that in that particular instance it wasn't worth it for the you know the gain i got in terms of the quality of the teaching and learning it wasn't worth it in a practical sense i find i do find it hard to argue against that particular scenario mm. um it okay i suppose it depends about the degree of control you have over the the learning space um, and unfortunately, if you're alone up front, if you're teaching outside of conventional structures, then you may find yourself in improvised learning spaces quite a lot, as opposed to the teacher that has his or her classroom and can mm. organize it how he or she sees fit. Um, but I still think that, um, okay, what I have come to think is that um, uh, I started off thinking it wasn't worth it. And then I started organizing the, tr- the chairs a little bit. And now I get to the stage where I try and find out exactly how many learners there's going to be. It's frustratingly difficult to do that. Um, but then move out all the excessive tables, get them to the back of the room so they're essentially gone. You can't sit at them and only have the number of desks that I'm actually going to need and the number of chairs mm-hmm. I'm going to need. And organize those into... Um, uh, a constellation which fits the type of lesson we're going to have. And mm. I find now that when I don't do it, it uh, it drives me crazy. Having random desks with no one sat at where their meaning isn't quite clear. Are you supposed to sit at them or not? It, it, it feels 
I don't know, maybe I'm just a little bit obsessive compulsive about this now, but it feels like a level of ambiguity and a level of carelessness about the space, which mm. I find profoundly <laughs> distressing as, as a teacher mm. now. And um, there's nothing be- I find better than having, say, 16 students, always a dream, four groups of four, absolutely amazing, three yeah. groups of, um, of six, <laughs> fantastic. Um, Fantastic. No, that's wrong. Uh, too great. <laughs> um, but uh, but then also, I mean, I think what's just yeah. as important as the space they're sitting is the empty space which you create around them by moving away um, unnecessary mm. chairs and desks. Um, because then, then I, I don't. I have to explain it in a normal spiritual way. <laughs> it's to do with the energy in the room. And when you have a relatively <laughs> empty room and four mm. tables with four chairs at each table, and they walk in, there's a sense of intent. The space has been designed with intent by mm. the by the teacher, and I, okay, I guess a lot of people are listening saying, yeah, okay, whatever. This is the, the feng shui of teaching is not what I'm here for, but I think that it sends a message about the um, the clear purpose, intent, and planning of the teacher in just just in the space when you walk in, and I wouldn't I wouldn't sacrifice mm. it for anything. Now it was my main kind of the, my first request always is okay. I mean I have to put them all back again at the end of this. It's another ten minutes or maybe mm. it's twenty five minutes of shifting tables around. Generally doing it on my own, and it is a pain. But I don't know the pay, the payoff is somehow mm. profound. So I guess listeners can tell that I believe well, yeah. I'm, I'm actually arguing yeah, the I case mean, that I believe you're absolutely. saying it's not what I'm yeah but you know what's I, I, but th- there is one yeah. other thing that th- that's come to mind I mean I think we've got to be careful you know we've got all of these ideas yep. concepts theories etc but <laughs> who are we teaching for you know we're not teaching no. for ourselves and um so it's worth thinking it's a big challenge for some students and one of my kind of touch points is always asia because yeah. I, I i lived there for four years i taught in a high school in japan for two years um and all of those classrooms are laid out in the same way yeah. without exception so and the students we're teaching now, uh, we're both teaching mm. in universities in Europe. We've got a lot of um, mm. Asian students coming in. Yeah. You, you are asking a lot of them. You are asking a lot of them to sit possibly facing another student whom, who, whom they might know, might never have met. Um, you're asking a lot of them to, to do that as opposed to just rocking up, sitting mm. and sitting and facing the teacher. We have to be aware of the cultural specifics of each teacher's situation. I, I do get that. Um, and uh, maybe there should be more, of, on, my, on my part, a sense of the, the privilege of flexibility, that I have some options of, of, of forming my own, my own learning space. I would say that wh- whoever's listening this, to this and wherever you're from, within the boundaries provided for you, just conf- think about how configuring the space taking control of the space and demonstrating your intent from the very first second that the learners enter the room think about the potential that that could have it was something that i dismissed early on but now i'm very much um very much into um creating a space that matches the learning i want to do that week and i think that um possibly it's an underused idea Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, uh, the phrase that comes to mind is controlling, controlling the controllables. We know we're yeah. going to have a lot of stress anyway teaching, and we were speaking last week. No matter how well it goes, mm-hmm. you're going to be exhausted at the end. So 
what can we control? And already on on this, you know, in our podcast, we've ticked off four or five things that you can control that are going to reduce the stress by by five percent. If you've got, if you're trying to do group work, and you've turned up ten minutes early and and sorted the tables out so that they actually work for group work, yeah, that's yeah. minus five off the stress, and that's plus five on the quality of the teaching. And now we're back really at our main topic. So I think we'll um we'll conclude that, and then we'll go into our tip of the day, and then we'll uh, we'll take this home. So. We said at the top of the cast that um, we have to look into making our interaction inclusive, trying to include more learners, prevent the establishment of damaging behavioural patterns um, where interaction is limited to, to two or three strong students. Group work can help us with this. And it's all really about, it's about controlling the space and controlling the interaction without being hegemonic about it as, as a teacher. The first thing you could think about is something which is very established in um, sort of primary and secondary level teaching, which is using a, a seating plan, which is a very strange idea in many areas of teaching, I could imagine, for the for our listeners, uh, guys and girls that are teaching alone up mm. front. A seating plan stipulates where each learner has to sit. You actually say, you need to sit there. And you put it on the... On the whiteboard, as they enter the class, they look for their name, they sit down in that seat. Now, in a, a high school or a comprehensive school context, at least from my experience, that's completely normal. You'd be crazy not to do it mm. because the first thing you need to yeah. do is um, take whatever measures you can to create positive interaction in the class. And, of course, you know these learners or you've been able to look at your school's data management system. You have a sense of what combinations might be problematic, how you can spread out more able students and try and get some interactive differentiation happening. Um, and so the seating plan is something that could be considered. Of course, can you imagine doing that in the, the, learn, the teaching that you do right now, saying to everybody, okay, mm. look for your name and go and sit down there? What do you think would happen? Well, um, the, well, I think the students would be surprised, but as you said, you know, it's a show of intent. Mm. And that would be, at, at a university level, that would be, that would be <laughs> unheard yeah. of. I agree. But possibly incredibly effective. But we do, you know, you said use the data management system. We do have certain uh, student information, you know, that we could yeah. access, including nationality, mm. including, you know, the previous module options mm. they've taken. So there's actually no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that. The other slight complication is, um, you know, if I teach five, five hours in a day, I'll probably use five different classrooms. Yeah. So, so actually being the practical side of actually being able to get there and set the tables up in a certain way. But there's, in theory anyway, there's no mm. reason why you couldn't uh, do some planning. And, and at the university I teach at, um, the office can, can, can make groups. They make groups for assessed work. And those groups are balanced in various ways, balanced by gender, by nationality, yep. by program. So all of this data is accessible. I don't see it being mm. used in that yep. way, but... I am appreciating the, the possibilities of that now. I think um, I've always stepped back from the brink when it comes to seating plans. I've never actually um, used one in higher education, although I use one all the time. 
when I worked in the uh, the secondary sector. But that's worth uh, just simply in order to spread around the different um, types of students. So you maybe have interaction with students all over the room at least, and there's just a spatial, um, a better spatial distribution. Of course, it won't just sitting in a different place won't necessarily make a reticent student um, be incredibly forthcoming. We need to do more than that. So the next stage is having um, students work in groups. If they're interacting with three of their fellow learners rather than interacting with you, there'll be more interaction overall. But the issue is, um, if you say to students, okay, form groups, get into groups of four, then you are losing that sense of intent because you're probably mm. going to have the capable students with whom you interact a lot. They may well gravitate towards each other to be in a group together. Sure. Um, maybe not, but you certainly don't, you might not have that ideal situation you imagine is going to happen where you have four groups and they're all motoring along and they're all interacting equally. I don't think you can really leave that to chance. And what mm. needs then to happen is you need to have some kind of system for uh, you, the teacher, stipulating the groups. So essentially creating a seating plan by stealth for the portion of the lesson mm. where you know interaction is going to be happening. So you don't make them sit in a certain seat for the whole lesson. But you say, okay, now we're doing the group work. Now for the groups, I have organized you into groups. And this can totally form mm. part of that of that yeah. um, metacognitive discussion we mentioned before. We can say, look, this is the this is the purpose of the group, but this is why I don't want to just stand here lecturing you on this for the next half hour. You need to go through this process yourself. It's kind of a little it's a little journey you guys have got to go on, and you've got to help each other out. And to support that process, we need to have the right combinations of of people. You need to be required to interact with people that you maybe don't know on a, on a friendly level. We need to have a mixture of people with different backgrounds and we need to have a mixture of people with different abilities. And um, by mm. restricting that, um, that seating plan, that, that kind of managed grouping to a certain part of the lesson, I think that it's a kind of a good halfway house. You are not being so controlling that they maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable, but you are saying, look, in order, because I care about you and your learning and because I want you to interact with other people because you need that for your learning, I'm just going to exercise a little bit of influence here to ensure you get the most of that experience. And I've organized the groups for the mm. next half hour and they're up on the board now. And you can, mm. you can pre-do mm. that. Now, you've set a time limit on it. It's clear it's not going to be for the rest of the lesson. So students know, oh, but if I don't mm. like that person, well, it'd be, okay, good. It's not going to be for the, the whole day or something. And I found that um, as long as it's introduced in the right way, students are quite fine with it. And then, you know, the little rewards later, they go back to sit with their friends. So this is something I think is a, is a good practice and worth um, thinking about pre-configuring the groups when you know who's going to be coming you can do it quickly on a piece of paper when you see who's there or you can do it in advance if you know exactly who's going to be present and then you use mm. the justification to create groups which are better balanced yeah that is a lot more likely to yeah, I, what you're going for sure and I, I do kind of do this i almost do this visually so look looking at the students and they're making some assumptions about what their nationality might be from from from, from the yeah. way they look and then trying to trying to balance out the nationalities um balance out the genders i mean the, the i i never say right get into groups of four 
I say kind of, okay, mm. you two, you mm. two come over here, mm. you two go over there. And then, and then maybe the remaining students can kind of, can kind of sort themselves out. But some of those big players, so maybe the, the, as you said, the students who do a lot of interaction mm. with you, who are mm. comfortable speaking in front of the class, split those up. And then the students of certain nationalities split yep. those up. And then you might have some students who you know are those reticent students we've been talking about, uh, split, split those up as well. So it's kind of a, kind of a semi a semi automated way you might say yeah i think it's worth mentioning now that um this has been a a topic that me and chris have talked about a lot over the past few years and um chris has another venture which you might be interested in called tiger spreadsheet solutions you can find him on youtube Mm -hmm. um and he'll do spreadsheet consultancy for you now one one i said to him um few years ago now i need an excel based app that can make these groups for me where i can um, click on different grouping numbers and i can be told okay you have this many students you can form these groups or these groups and you can then organize them according to gender and according to maybe well according to two levels of um of organization so in my case i've got it via gender and then via ability and that means that i can at the click of a button create groups in new constellations and that's an app which is something that we're pretty open about discussing so anybody listening that would like to get hold of it or try it out or find out about it mm. then go to podbean um alone up front you can find our page there and just yep. uh, send us an email and we do of course have a video about this we yep. made a video for my the tiger spreadsheet solutions youtube channel so if you go to youtube and then you search tiger spreadsheet solutions and then the name of the video is um bespoke grouping app for excel or something like that so you can actually watch a video about this as well but this 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 isn't an elaborate infomercial (laughs) we have to say uh we're not not looking to make massive profit out of it but as you said steve it just does does those things we've been talking about makes groups quickly and deals with the arithmetic as well Uh, you know, so if, you, if you've got 19 students, you know, yeah. one of the different possible grouping combinations does lots of those important yeah. things um, at the click of a button. What you ultimately then have is you have group work as a strategy which actually offers solutions to creative, creating inclusive interaction possibilities in your lessons. It's not perfect. It's a solution which only works if, if you do it right. It's all about the implementation. And too often... A teacher might try out some group work out of a very laudable desire to even out interactions, and then it doesn't work very well for various different reasons. You find out the group sizes weren't right, or you find out that the groups were dominated, or one group was extremely successful, other groups were very... But it's because um, you didn't then spread out the different abilities among the groups. If you do that right, and if you learn to get ahead of the situation and foreground why you're doing it, make that... A point with your learners so they are have been asked to consider why this might be a good idea for their own learning then um with practice and with perseverance i think it can form part of lessons which avoid that avoid reinforcing these negative behavior patterns which and we really owe it to the learners who we are entrusted with i think to try and have them question the, their actions and their attitudes and their approaches to their own learning. Because again, as always, keeping it metacognitive, it's their awareness mm. of their own habits and um, insecurities and confidence issues. That's what they need to have in order to make their learning effective in the long term. Yeah, what can I say? You've absolutely knocked it out of the park there, Steve, with that summary. And But what what, what I've taken out of this is... 
you know, we shouldn't be the teacher at the front of the class who's like rustling up ideas mm. and getting the students to do them. We should share that process. You know, this, 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 this is why we're doing, this is why we do it. You know, mm. this is why we do group work. It's mm. going to help you X, Y, and Z and get that kind of emotional buy-in at the beginning. And then, you know, you can be like, well, guys, you know, we agreed to do this together. I mean, that for me is you know, quite a fundamentally different approach to it. And it's something Great. I will be trying. So, top tip time before we uh, close out for the day. Chris, have you ever had a situation where yeah. uh, you've been doing some group work or some kind of task and it's clear that there's going to be some kind of plenary situation where each group is uh, reporting back to the rest of the group? So <laughs> maybe it's like a Absolutely. mini presentation yeah. or maybe it's just, okay, I'd like each group to feed back briefly to the rest of us, blah, blah, blah. And then they do the task and then you get to the end. It's right, okay, 10 minutes left. So uh, which group would like to start? And of course, there's a deathly silence. Yeah. And um, eventually you cajole <laughs> one group into starting. Oh, they finally do it. Great. Then, okay, who wants to go next? Deathly silence. Um, mm. I find mm -hmm. this stuff is energy sapping and these constant negotiations will come on. Who wants to yeah. I know it's tricky going for no, and then no one wants to do it. And once again, you're having diff, uh, inclusion issues because the more, the more confident students are going to step up and grab the limelight again. My top tip for this week yep is that whenever you are going to have a series of students or groups giving feedback to the whole group and there's going to be nervousness about it, you need to lock down the order that they're going to do that in a fun mm. and fair way as early as you can. So... Um, just let's mm -hmm. say um, you're going to give out a case study. Um, they're in groups of four. They're going to read it, discuss it, and then give their suggestions for um, for what they've learned. And each group is going to have two minutes to talk about it to the class. Um, I would give out the sheets. They'd be start. The group would start. Then what I suggest you do is um, grab a piece of paper, tear it up into. Uh, say you've got four groups. Four groups of four. Tear it up into four pieces. Write a big one, a big two, a big three, and a big four on those respective pieces, um, then roll those four pieces of papers up into a ball, grab a hat or a cap or a cup, or just hold them in your hands and walk around each group and ask them to choose a rolled up ball of paper. Mm. So during, during the, well, group whilst work, the group whilst they're doing the work. Um, and yeah. then when they un unfurl it, they'll say, so, so, so what number did you get? And they'll say three. And I'll ah, so third place. Nice one. You're going third or fourth or first. And mm. it is... I mean, I don't. Uh, people listening to this might be thinking like, well, uh, and what, what, why? <laughs> but the simple fact mm. of rolling up little boards of paper and having them choose is a fair and transparently random way of assigning the order of the presentations. Mm. Uh, so you're not putting pressure on them. You know, you, you're just making it random. And once that order is set, but there's still, say, 10 or 15 minutes before it actually happens, you're giving them time to acclimatize the reality that they're going first or that they're going last. And by having that yep. stuff locked down at an early stage, and also you can use it as a nice little breakup activity mm. so you can go around the groups and, and make a bit of a joke about it or whatever, but it reduces that uncertainty during the crucial time when you're trying to get the outcomes the feedback in in the whole group scenario because then it's not a question of right who wants to go first mm -hmm. you just look to the board where you wrote it and said ah so it's um sarah's group going first as we all know yeah and because it's on the board and they they, they chose the piece of paper as a free choice um it's completely externalized from you 
you get rid of this idea of the teacher putting mm. pressure on the students or the teacher begging or cajoling mm. the please come on won't anybody do it you get out of that because oh, yeah. because yeah. that's that's not good you shouldn't be doing that and there's no need for you to do that that's mm. where the students have once again got you over a barrel because you've kind of outsourced some of the power for that lesson yeah. to them um this doesn't have to be this way mm. if you can externalize the whole process by making it drawing straws picking a random thing um and then create crucially create that time period so that the reality of who is going when has been established there's no pushback mm. it's it's remarkable yeah yeah this is definitely something i'm going to be doing i mean it's another it's yeah. another marginal gain isn't it it's another five percent energy saved and as I said earlier, I think these are adding up. If people have watched the what? first three, watched, if people have listened to the first three, um, the first three episodes, you know, I've, I've noted down four or five things I'm going to do. And definitely it's also like during the group work for the teacher, you know, the question is, okay, what, what do I do? Do I do the classic move around mm -hmm. the classroom? Um, do I go and, you know, sit on a desk next to a group and say, and, and mm -hmm. say something clever? You know, there's there's all this kind of cliche stuff. There's a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable with that, all of that. So to have something to do, this is why I created admin tasks for me to do during the group work, including yeah. manning the timer, mm -hmm. starting the timer, checking the timer, um, and I also have an online tool that we'll talk about sometime. Mm -hmm. Setting that up, putting the questions in on that. Now this is another admin task for me to do when the group work is taking place. So there's a reason for me to go to the group and do this. You can guarantee when you're interacting about mm. picking that number, they're going to ask you yep. a question about That's something. Right. So this is maybe, you know, maybe someone's heading off to teach having listened to this. Maybe you're on the way to your lesson right now. Maybe you're applying some group work. Um, just do it. Grab a piece of paper, tear it up, write the numbers, hand it out, and it'll work. It's, it's a good one. Hope, 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 hope it works for you. Okay. Chris, uh, seeing as you uh, started us off today, I guess you have, to, you have to take us home. Yes, well, it's been episode four, episode four today, I believe, of uh, the Loan Up From po podcast. And as I said, hopefully you're developing a nice shopping list of ideas that you can implement in your teaching. We're talking about some quite heavy theoretical stuff, metacognition, but also some really useful practical stuff how can you bring these theories into practice get them working in your teaching we'd love to hear from from the listeners steve so find you know whatever platform you you're on try to leave us a comment get in touch via email let us know what you'd like us to be talking about on the alone upfront podcast the podcast for teachers doing it by themselves we'll talk to you soon